Welcome, friends. I'm your host, Adrian, and yes, you found us. Stamp Stories, a podcast about Canadian stamps and the stories behind them. Yeah. So if you love stamp collecting, Canadian history, or both, this is the show for you. This is episode number 25, and today we'll be celebrating the career and life of a Canadian singer, songwriter, poet, novelist, and most recently honored by Canada Post with three beautiful stamps reflecting his illustrious career. Yes, that's right. Today we'll be talking about the multi-talented Leonard Cohen. More in just a moment. Hello friends, thanks for joining us. Today I'm so excited to share the stories behind the three stamps released by Canada Post honoring Leonard Cohen. Now to be honest, tackling a life as full and varied as that of Leonard Cohen has left me with some trepidation. How best to tell his story? How to make sure I include all the important bits? How can I ensure I give a legend a fitting tribute? I am far from as eloquent as him, so please forgive me for any of my failures. All I can say is I did my best. And so off we go. Let us start with the beginning. Leonard Cohen was born in Montreal on September 21st, 1934, into an upper-class Jewish family. He grew up in a house on Belmont Avenue in Westmount. The men in his family, particularly on his father's side, were very involved in the Jewish community of Montreal. His grandfather, for example, was the founder of a range of Jewish institutions in the city, In the wake of anti-Semitic pogroms in the Russian Imperium, he saw to it that countless refugees made it to Canada. Nathan Cohen, Leonard's father, ran Friedman Company, the family clothing business. And Nathan wasn't really a religious figure. And uh, unfortunately, tragically, he died when Leonard was only nine. His mother, Masha, came from a family of more recent immigrants. Once being interviewed, he said of his mother, quote, My mother was a refugee and witnessed the destruction of her own milieu in Russia. I think she was justifiably melancholy about something in the sense of the Chekhovian character. It was both comic and self-aware. But I would not describe her as morbidly melancholy as I was, end quote. As a matter of fact, in one story he shared, he talked about the warmth of his mother. I had a very, I had a wonderful uh, mother. Uh, I really only met her when I was 40. You know, I never saw her as a woman until I was 40. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I, I think it takes a long time before uh, before you see your parents as human beings. That's true. Uh, I, I always thought she was wonderful, and uh, she was... Uh, you know, my friends would come back to the house at 2 or 3 in the morning uh, when we were teenagers and make French fried potatoes in the kitchen, and my mother would come down, and she'd sing with us. To three, four in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was really a warm, uh, open, uh, not protective though in that, mm-hmm. in that smothering sense, no. Growing up, Leonard also had a beloved dog who was really important to him as he told an interviewer in 2001. Did you have a dog when you were little? Yes, I had a, a, a Scotty, Scottish Terrier. Uh, his name was, my mother named him Tovaric, comrade. We called him Tinky. And uh, yes, a very, uh, very, I guess, the closest being to me during my childhood. The dog would sleep under my bed and follow me to school and, and wait for me. Uh, uh, so that was a, a great sense of companionship. 
Because you sometimes write about a dog. Well, I have his picture on my, on my dresser in Los Angeles. We, we loved uh, that dog, you know. My sister gave me his picture framed as a present. And what happened when he died? He died when he was about 13 years old, which is quite old for a dog. And uh, he just uh, asked to go out one night. You know how a dog will just go and stand beside the door. So we opened the door. It was a winter night. And he walked out, and we never saw him again. And it was very uh, distressing. You know, I put ads in the newspaper, and we would, people would say, yes, we have found a Scotty. And, you know, you'd drive 50 miles, and it wouldn't be your Scotty. Uh, and we only found him in the springtime when the snow melted, and the smell came from under the neighbor's porch. Uh, he had just gone outside and gone under the neighbor's porch to die. In another interview, when Leonard was reflecting on these early years, he noted, quote, The death of my father was significant, and the death of my dog were too. I would say these were major events of my childhood and my adolescence. As a teenager, he formed a country western band called the Buckskin Boys. He was always fond of country, listening to radio stations coming up from the United States as a young boy, but this band did not last long. And besides, Leonard was on his way towards having a great literary career. When he was 17, Cohen entered McGill University as an English major. As an undergraduate studying at McGill, Cohen struck up a deep friendship with one of his professors, the poet Irving Layton who became a lifelong friend, and his importance to Cohen's artistic development cannot be overstated. In a 1984 CBC interview, Leonard reflects on the early days meeting Leighton and his time at McGill. I was about 17 when I met him. I guess it was in my second or third year of college. And uh, I was writing poetry, and he was one of, the, one of the lights around the city. Did you take him your stuff? No, I never had that kind of association with mm -hmm. him. We, uh, we never had a student-teacher association. Right. We became friends right off and would meet at Murray's or he'd come over to my room on Peel Street where I was living and uh, we'd show each other poems. There was never any... That was one of the aspects of his generosity, even though he, he was and probably is a, a, a more accomplished writer than I am. Uh, there was never the sense that I was bringing my stuff to him. At university, were you... Um Considered a curiosity, even at seventeen and eighteen. No, I, I, uh, I, I never. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I was, but uh, certainly among my friends and uh, the people I knew, uh, there was, you know, there was no attempt of any of us to to stand out in any special way. We thought we were sort of living brideshead revisited. Is that at, so? At McGill University. This was before Sputnik. Oh, before, the, after boaters, but before Sputnik. Yeah, it was before uh, the universities began to get uh, anxious about what they were teaching. And it was a very relaxed uh, situation. And I think we spent most of the time listening to that Rodrigo guitar concerto and drinking wine and uh, writing poetry and chasing after girls. In 1956, a year after Cohen graduated with a Bachelor of Arts, his first poetry collection, Let Us Compare Mythologies, was published. Though rough as it might be expected given that many of the poems were the work of a teenager, it bore seeds of what his future poetic work would become. Sexual, intellectual, spiritual, melancholic, and tinged by dark humor. After completing his undergraduate degree, 
Cohen spent a term in the McGill Faculty of Law, and then a year, 1956-57, at Columbia University School of General Studies in New York. Cohen would describe his graduate school experience as, quote, passion without flesh, love without climax, unquote. This was also the height of the beatnik generation, which also came with it a sense of restlessness and a need to explore. Consequently, Cohen left New York and returned to Montreal in 1957, working various odd jobs and focusing on the writing of fiction and poetry. Cohen had this flexibility, as his father's will provided him with a modest trust income of $750 a year, which was sufficient enough at the time to allow him to pursue his literary ambitions, at least for a time. In 1959, Cohen signed a deal with the publisher McLennan Stewart and received a $2,000 grant from the Canadian Council for the Arts to begin work on his first novel, which would become The Favourite Game. With this grant, he went abroad to England, and eventually, in April 1960, he found his way to the Greek island of Hydra. Let's have Leonard tell the story of how that all came to be. One day I was walking down Bank Street. I had a, a tooth out and was raining and I had a cold and I saw the Bank of Greece etched in, mar etched in marble and I went in there and, and there was a, a man wearing sunglasses behind the counter and I thought that was <laughs> that was really splendid that was a real that was the most eloquent protest against the entire landscape that I'd seen you know he was wearing sunglasses in the bank and it only had moderate fluorescent lighting so not long after he arrived in Athens, he visited the Acropolis, made his way to the port of Pyrrhus, boarded a ferry, and disembarked at the island of Hydra. He was 25 years old when he first stepped foot onto his Greek paradise. On Hydra, he fell in with an assortment of expats exploring the world. They were a bit late to be beatniks, a bit early to be hippies. This was a crowd where true bohemianism, in the classic sense, could be found. And Cohen also found the sun he wanted but it also had the sparseness he craved to stay focused on the task at hand. The Hydra of 1960 had limited electricity, only a handful of telephone lines, and virtually no plumbing. In 1961, The Spice Box of Earth was released by Leonard, and it was the first book that he published through the Canadian publishing company, McLennan Stewart. The Spice Box of Earth was quite successful in helping him expand the audience for his poems. After the release of that work, Leonard would spend time in Hydra, Montreal, and in New York. As for his writing process at the time, Cohen alternated between extreme discipline and the varieties of abandon. There were days of fasting to concentrate the mind, there was drink, there was women, and of course there were drugs too, pot, speed, and acid. He was quoted once as saying, quote, I took a trip after trip, sitting on my terrace in Greece, waiting to see God, end quote. He would say years later, generally, I ended up with a bad hangover. It was also on Hydra that Cohen met one of the loves of his life, newly abandoned by her writer husband, a Norwegian beauty, Mariana, who would eventually inspire some of Cohen's greatest songs. They lived together in a house Cohen bought in Hydra, and he helped raise her young son, Axel. Some of the songs Mariana and Hydra would later inspire include Bird on a Wire, Hey, That's No Way to Say Goodbye, and of course, So Long, Marianne. These songs, of course, would come later. In the early 1960s, Leonard Cohen was still intent on making a career as a poet and a novelist, and he still had a wanderlust. For example, shortly after the Cuban Revolution, Leonard went to Cuba. His sister Esther had honeymooned there before the 1959 revolution, and Cohen was curious to see the place. He was also following the route of his literary mentor, Garcia Lorca, who preceded him in Havana. Lorca was so influential for him, he would actually name his daughter after him. 
In this 1966 NFB film, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Leonard Cohen, he shares the poem this trip inspired. I was very interested in, in what it really meant for men to carry arms and to kill other men, and how attracted I was exactly to that process. That, that's getting closer to the truth. The, the real truth is that I wanted to kill or be killed. No, no, I don't want to give the idea, as I've been giving in the past 10 or 15 minutes, that I'm completely obsessed with the idea of danger. But I suppose I am. So it's just as well that I gave the idea away. I was in Havana in 1961 during the Bay of Pigs invasion, fighting on both sides. <laughs> and I wrote this poem called the only tourist in Havana turns his thoughts homeward. <laughs> Come, my brothers, let us govern Canada. Let us find our serious heads. Let us dump asbestos on the White House. Let us make the French talk English, not only here, but everywhere. <laughs> Let us torture the Senate individually <laughs> until they confess. Let us purge the new party. Let us encourage the dark races so they'll be lenient when they take over. <laughs> Let us make the CBC talk English. Let us all lean in one direction and float down to the coast of Florida. Let us have two governor generals at the same time. Let us have another official language. Let us determine what it will be. Let us give a Canada Council fellowship to the most original suggestion. Let us teach sex in the home to parents. Let us threaten to join the USA and pull out at the last moment. <laughs> My brothers, come. Our serious heads are waiting for us somewhere, like Gladstone bags abandoned after a coup d'etat. Let us put them on very quickly. Let us maintain a stony silence on the St. Lawrence Seaway. That poem was from his collection of poems, which would be titled Flowers for Hitler. His travels and wanderlust would also be the time he would complete his first novel called The Favorite Game, which actually was a modest success. In October 1964, he received the Prix Littéraire du Québec, or the Literary Prize of Quebec, and then followed uh, that up with a reading tour. This whole enterprise would earn him about $17,000 at the time, which he mostly used on travel his only real luxury. It was also in the early 1960s while visiting his mother on a break from Hydra that a skill for guitar playing got an upgrade and how he would say later how he found his song. In 2011, Leonard would divulge this story as he accepted an award for letters in Spain at an annual prize awarded by the royal family there. Let's listen in. I have a Conde guitar, which was made in Spain in the great workshop at number seven Gravina Street, a beautiful instrument that I acquired over 40 years ago. 
I took it out of the case, I lifted it, it seemed to be filled with helium. It was so light. And I brought it to my face. I put my face close to the beautifully designed rosette and I inhaled the fragrance of the living wood. You know that wood never dies. I inhaled the fragrance of cedar, as fresh as the first day that I acquired the guitar. And a voice seemed to say to me, you are an old man and you have not said thank you. You have not brought your gratitude back to the soil from which this fragrance arose. And so I come here tonight to thank the soil and the soul of this people that has given me so much. Because I know just as an identity card is not a man, a credit rating is not a country. Now, you know of my deep association and confraternity with the poet Federico Garcia Lorca. I could say that when I was a young man, an adolescent, and I hungered for a voice, I studied the English poets, and I knew their work well, and I copied their styles, but I could not find a voice. It was only when, when I read, even in translation, the works of Lorca, that I understood that there was a voice. It is not that I copied his voice. I would not dare. But he gave me permission to find a voice, to locate a voice, that is, to locate a self, a self that is not fixed, a self that struggles for its own existence. And as I grew older, I understood that instructions came with this voice. What were these instructions? The instructions were never to lament casually. And if one is to express the great inevitable defeat that awaits us all, it must be done within the strict confines of dignity and beauty. And so I had a voice, but I did not have an instrument. I did not have a song. And now I'm going to tell you very briefly a story of how I got my song. Because I was an indifferent guitar player. I banged the chords. I only knew a few of them. I sat around with my college friends drinking and singing the folk songs or the popular songs of the day. But I never in a thousand years thought of myself as a musician or as a singer. One day, in the early 60s, I was visiting my mother's house in Montreal. The house is beside a park, and in the park, there's a tennis court where many people come to watch the beautiful young tennis players uh, uh, um, enjoy their sport. I wandered back to this park, which I had known since my childhood, and there was a young man playing a guitar. He was playing a flamenco guitar. And he was surrounded by two or three girls and boys who were listening to him. I loved the way he played. There was something about the way he played that, that captured me. It was the way 
I wanted to play and knew that I would never be able to play. And I sat there with the other listeners for a few moments, and then there was a, a silence, an appropriate silence. I asked him if he would give me guitar lessons. He was a young man from Spain, and we could only communicate in my broken French and his broken French. He didn't speak English. And he agreed to give me guitar lessons. I pointed to my mother's house, which you could see from the tennis court, and we made an appointment. We settled a price, and he came to my mother's house the next day, and he said, let me hear you play something. I tried to play something. He said, you don't know how to play, do you? I said, no, I really don't know how to play. He said, first of all, let me tune your guitar. It's, it's all out of tune. So he took the guitar and, and he tuned it. He said, it's not a bad guitar. It wasn't the Conde, but it wasn't a bad guitar. So he handed it back to me. He said, now play. Couldn't play any better. He said, let me show you some chords. And he took the guitar and he produced a sound from that guitar that I'd never heard. And he, he played a sequence of chords with a tremolo. And he said, now you do it. I said, it's out of the question. I, I can't possibly do it. He said, let me put your fingers on the frets. And he, he put my fingers on the frets. And he said, now, now play. It, it was a mess. He said, I'll come back tomorrow. He came back tomorrow. He put my hands on the guitar. He, he placed it on my lap in the way that was appropriate. And, and I began again with those six chords, six chord pro progression that many, many flamenco songs are based on. I was a little better that day. The third day improved, somewhat improved. But I knew the chords now, and I knew that although I couldn't coordinate my fingers with my thumb to produce the correct tremolo pattern, I knew the chords. I knew them very, very well by this point. The next day, he didn't come. He didn't come. I had the number of his, of his boarding house in Montreal. I phoned to find out why he had missed the appointment. And they told me that he'd taken his life, that he committed suicide. I knew nothing about the man. I, I did not know what part of Spain he came from. I did not know why he came to Montreal. I did not know why he stayed there. I did not know why he appeared in that tennis court. I did not know why he took his life. I, w I was deeply saddened, of course. But now I disclose something that I've never spoken in public. It was those six chords. It was that guitar pattern that has been the basis of all my songs and all my music. So now you will begin to understand the dimensions of the gratitude I have for this country. 
Everything that you have found favorable in my work comes from this place. Everything, everything that you have found favorable in my songs and my poetry are inspired by this soil. So I thank you so much for the warm hospitality that you have shown my work because it is really yours and you have allowed me to affix my signature to the bottom of the page. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. This happenstance encounter would inevitably change his life. Such lucky connections would not be his last. Nonetheless, before he would take on songwriting, Leonard was enjoying the height of fame as a poet and a novelist. In 1966, the NFB released the great documentary in Time Capsule, Ladies and Gentlemen, Mr. Leonard Cohen. The original film was shot as a documentary on four Canadian poets who toured a handful of universities in 1964. The working title of the film was Four Poets and included Leonard Cohen, Earl Burney, Irving Layton, and Phyllis Gottlieb. However, once in the editing stage, they found the material was to be lacking, so Don Owen, the original director, walked away from the project. Donald Brittain came in and shot additional footage and then turned it into a Cohen-focused biopic, which they found to be a much more charismatic film subject. Shortly after the film was released, Leonard Cohen would also publish his second and final novel, titled Beautiful Losers. At the center of the novel are the members of a love triangle united by their obsessions and fascination with a 17th century Mohawk saint. Cohen wrote the novel in two eight-month spurts while living on the Greek island of Hydra in 1964 and 1965. He fasted and consumed amphetamines to focus his creativity on the novel, and despite a lavish rollout, sales were very disappointing, and critics were initially unsympathetic and hostile. Here's a sample shared on Canadian television during an interview on Take 30 on the CBC in 1966. But listen to what some of the critics said about his latest book. Quote, this is among other things the most revolting book ever written in Canada. End quote. Quote, I have just read Leonard Cohen's new novel, Beautiful Losers, and have had to wash my mind. End quote. Quote, verbal masturbation. End quote. Quote, we've had overdrive and overkill, and now we have oversex, end quote. Quote, at its best, loses is a sluggish stream of concupiscence, exposition of nausea, end quote. In one of your poems, you say, now more than ever, I want enemies. Do you feel this way about the criticisms of your books? Oh, yes. Well, I'd feel pretty lousy if I were praised by uh, a lot of the people that have uh, come down pretty heavy on me. Right now, you're writing songs. Yeah. Well, and yeah, you're not yeah. writing poetry, and you're not writing a novel at the moment. So you're liking it better. Well, I'm not interested in, in, in posterity, which is a kind of, uh, somebody said, a kind of paltry form of eternity. I like the stuff I do to have that kind of horizontal immediacy rather than something that is going to be around for a long time. I'm not interested in an insurance plan for my work. As harsh as the criticism was at the time, Cohen seemed to be okay with it. When responding to a question to his interviewer on Take 30, Adrian Clarkson, yes, that Adrian Clarkson, she notes here in this little clip, um, he had already begun pushing away from the life of the writer and begin to dabble in songwriting. In 1966, that same year, Cohen also published another book of poetry called Parasites of Heaven, but sales were also dismal. 
So while Leonard Cohen was considered by many the leading new voice of the Canadian poetry scene, the book sales were really poor, and he decided that he would have to look at something different in terms of his career because he knew now that he would never be able to fully support himself, let alone anyone else, by writing literature. And not surprisingly, this and his other works have only gained critical and commercial attention once he had given up novel writing and became known for his songwriting. Now his works actually are considered important parts of the Canadian literary canon. Now let's listen in to an interview with the BBC in 1988 as he reflected on this period of transition from author of literature to songwriting. You know, if, if, if we sold 400 books of poetry in Canada, we considered ourselves to be well on our way to immortality. But I, I had already written a novel, and I'd written another novel, I'd written two novels, and uh, I'd received pretty good reviews for those novels, but I couldn't pay my rent. In hindsight, it seems like a mad decision that I was going to rectify my uh, economic situation by becoming a singer. But uh, I, I uh, had been uh, very interested in country music for a long time, and I'd been writing songs for a long time. I thought I'd go down to Nashville and uh, cut a country western record, and that would take care of everything. And on the way down to Nashville, I'd been in Greece for about six years. I wasn't really aware of what was going on. I, I was totally unaware of the so-called folk song renaissance. It wasn't folk music at all, but they call it that. I, I didn't know who Dylan was or Joan Baez or Judy Collins. And uh, on the way down to Nashville, I got ambushed in New York by this whole phenomenon. So there was Leonard. He had left Hydra in November 1966 with the intent to travel to Nashville with the goal of starting a career as a country western singer. As he would say, while he stopped in New York, he was ambushed by a burgeoning folk scene there. At first, the goal as a songwriter was not too serious at the time, as he noted to a CBC interviewer, Sheila Rogers, in 2006. Well, I never thought of myself as a songwriter. Uh, I always loved music and I played guitar. Uh, I thought of myself as a writer, as a novelist, but mm. I couldn't make a living that way, so uh, I thought as an interim uh, activity, just to tide myself over, I'd, I'd try to write some songs because the, the so-called folk song renaissance had started mm. and there were people like Joan Baez and Dylan and Dave Van Ronk and Phil Oaks and Judy Collins, uh, they, they were already working. I, I'd been in Europe. Uh, in Greece for a long time, so I didn't really know what was happening. I came back. I used to listen to a lot of country music, and I had a country mm. band when I was young. The Buckskin Boys. The Buckskin Boys, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, I, I never thought I'd end up as a songwriter. I thought I'd, I, I'd uh, you know, just, this was a temporary activity. But I think I was better at it than writing novels. I, I'm not sure. So there he was, Leonard took up a room at the Chelsea Hotel in New York and slowly infiltrated the local folk scene that he saw burgeoning here. His time at the Chelsea Hotel would later be fodder for a song about a tryst with Janis Joplin. That would be on a later album, though. But for now, he was just soaking it all in and adapting his country music knowledge to folk music. But it wouldn't take that much more time, because through a friend of his named Mary Martin, he was able to make an important connection. 
During an interview in 2012, Judy Collins recounts how she was able to come to know of Leonard Cohen. We have a mutual friend who was a good friend of mine, Mary Martin, who was in the music business in New York. And she and I, in the 60s, oh, I don't know, I think I met Mary probably in 63. And for three years, she talked to me about Leonard Cohen and about his poetry and about his books. And she had gone to McGill, I think, with him in, in Canada. And he sounded very interesting. He was a published poet, and he was also a published novelist. He'd written by then, I think he'd written Beautiful Losers. And so when, she kept saying, he thinks he might be writing some songs. So, And by this time, <clears throat> it was interesting because I had already had a record uh, contract with Electra since 1961. I'd started recording traditional songs. I didn't write my own songs. So because of that, and because I had a contract, a lot of singer-songwriters would come to me with songs because they didn't have contracts and they would like to get them out into the world. So I had recorded Tom Paxton, Pete Seeger, um, Eric Anderson, Everybody was bringing me songs, and some of them were great. Some of them I recorded immediately. So I said to Mary, well, why don't you, I mean, have him come up, have him come down to New York, and we'll meet and see if he, if there are songs. Not expecting a lot. And so I was in New York living with a, a Welshman, as a matter of fact, a Welsh Englishman and named Michael Thomas, and... Uh, Leonard came over to the house, to the apartment, I should say. And he walked in the door, and he was good-looking, tall, dangerous-looking, of course, handsome, quiet, a poetic type, um, very attractive, lovely man. We talked a lot that night. There were some other people there, too. And we talked a lot, but no songs. So I thought, well, I guess he doesn't really write songs. And the next day he came back, and this time he brought his guitar. Maybe he had his guitar with him before, but he didn't play it. But he came back, and it was just me and Michael there. And he, he sat down, and he prefaced by saying, I don't know, I can't play very well, and I can't sing very well, and I don't know if this is a song. And then he sang me three songs. He sang Dress Rehearsal Rag. He sang Suzanne. And he sang the Stranger song. And the one that attracted me immediately was Dress Rehearsal Rag, primarily because I was working on an album which was a big shift from the singer-songwriter traditions. And I had moved into Kurt Weill and Bertolt Brecht. I was recording songs from, from the Marat Saad, music by Richard Peasley, which were part of the Peter Brook production of the Marat Saad. And I was recording Pirate Jenny. And this song, which really is about a contemplated suicide, seemed to me to fit into this dramatic framework very well. So immediately I said, my goodness, I could record that in five minutes. And then I thought about Suzanne and I said the same thing. So by the time he left, and it was it was something that was karmic, I'm sure, because I recorded his songs for a long time, starting with Dress Rehearsal Rag and, and Suzanne. I've never recorded the Stranger song, but I will one of these days. 
And I've recorded a couple of dozens, a dozen of, of Leonard's songs. And that's how it all began. Her album, In My Life, released in November 1966 with two of Leonard Cohen's songs, Dress Rehearsal Rag and Suzanne, would peak at number 46 on the Billboard pop album charts in 1967. And by 1970, it would be a gold record and sell over a million copies in the U.S. alone. Judy was early on very cognizant of the importance of Leonard for her as well, as she noted in this interview. Leonard did a great service to me too because he could have gone, Mary Martin knew everybody. But not everybody was not a singer-songwriter. I was not a writer, and that was the key. So I wasn't recording all my own songs. There was a window there for him, but also there was a window for me because I needed his songs as much as he needed me to sing them. Regardless of how you look at it, Judy Collins was also very instrumental in getting Leonard on the stage, too. When I first met him, he had just started to... um, In fact, he didn't think of himself as a singer. Quite the contrary. He was very shaken up when I suggested that he should sing because I heard him as a singer immediately. I heard this charming quality that was very musical. And so I twisted his arm and uh, he probably doesn't thank me for it because I, I invited him quite forcefully to come on and sing on a show with me. It was at Town Hall and uh, he looked very handsome in his suit and I went on and sang a few songs and then introduced him and brought him on stage. And by then everyone had heard my recording of Suzanne and it had become a very popular record. So people were very happy and thrilled to see Leonard Cohen in the flesh. And he came out and he stood in the middle there and began singing the song. And I knew that he was shaking like a leaf because I had seen him, seen his hands on the guitar. And he got about halfway through the first verse and he stopped and dropped his hands to his side and said, I can't go on, and turned and walked off the stage. And everybody went crazy. They loved it. You know, it was very, it was very avant-garde to do that. It was way before Philip Glass would have thought of anything like that. So then he went back on and he finished, you know, to being encouraged and everybody said, oh, come on, Leonard, you know, you can do that. And of course, it was the beginning of, of this grueling life as a, as a traveling troubadour because he, in fact, is a wonderful performer. It turns out that he sings very well. He's quite mesmerizing as a singer, and I'm sure he doesn't often think of it, but when he does, he may not thank me <laughs> for setting him on this road. And setting him on that road, she did. His song, Suzanne, became a hit for Judy Collins and was for many years his most covered song. Initially, Suzanne was born as a poem published in his 1966 poetry book called Parasites of Heaven, but it was not a fully formed song then, and the book had not really sold that well. With Judy recording the song, though, everyone would learn of the woman who gave him tea and oranges from China. The inspiration for the song was Suzanne Verdal and Old Montreal, as Leonard shared with Paul Zolo in his book From Songwriters on Songwriting. After his death, Paul would release the audio from this interview with him, And keep in mind, this is not, you know, wasn't really originally recorded for broadcast. So let's listen in on how Suzanne, the song, came to be. Uh, When I started playing guitar, one of the first songs I learned was Suzanne, and started writing songs too. And I guess my main question at that time is, how does someone write a song this beautiful? To to this day, it's almost a miracle to me. It is a miracle, and I don't know where the good songs come from. 
That was. I knew that I was on top of something. You know, I, the, the, I developed the, the picking pattern first, and I was walking down. You know, I was spending a lot of time on the waterfront in Montreal in the harbor area. It hadn't really been reconstructed yet. It, it's now called Old Montreal, and it's uh, a lot of the buildings have been restored. It wasn't at that time, and there was that sailors' church. Uh, that has the, the statue of the Virgin uh, uh, gilded so that the sun comes down on her. Yeah. And uh, I knew that there was a song there. And then I met Suzanne, uh, the, who was the wife of uh, Armand Vaillancourt, a friend of mine, who was a dancer, and uh, she took me down to her place near the river. She one of the first people to have a kind of loft house near the St. Lawrence. Hmm. You know, and I, I, I knew that it was about that church, and I knew that it was about the river. I didn't know, I didn't have anything to uh, uh, crystallize the song, you know, to... And then her name entered into the song, and the, the, then it was a matter of reportage, of really just speaking about, as accurately as I could, about what she did. You mentioned earlier that it did take you a long time to, to complete Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have uh, many, many worksheets. And nothing compared to the worksheets I have now. This, but it took me several months. Hmm. Did she feed you tea and oranges? She fed me a tea called Constant Comment, which hmm. has small pieces of orange in it, which gave birth to the image. Ah. That to me, since I was a kid, seemed like the most romantic. I yeah. Eating tea and oranges. Yeah. Always hoped for that to happen. <laughs> and uh, and also another line that just just always was so beautiful. She shows you where to look among the garbage and the flowers. They're heroes of the seaweed. That's such a hopeful. Image. Yes, it is. Uh, you know, I'm very grateful for those lines and for that song. It's understandable why he was so grateful for that song as it truly launched his career. Judy Collins would also introduce Leonard to legendary talent scout John Hammond, who immediately decided to sign him. In one fell swoop, Leonard found himself quickly on the path of a real career that only a year earlier might have seemed something that was going to be only temporary. At the end of 1967, Songs of Leonard Cohen, his debut album, was released on December 27th on Columbia Records. Although Hammond was supposed to produce the initial record, he became sick and was replaced by producer John Simon. This album contains both his early versions of Suzanne and So Long Marianne. Leonard will also begin to tour with this album. The nervousness Leonard had for live performances was real. It did not really subside for him until he was in his 70s. He was never one of those musicians who talked about feeling most alive or at home on stage. Although he had many successful performance strategies, including drugs and drink, the act of giving concerts often made him feel like, quote, some parrot chained to his stand, end quote, as he remarked at one concert in Jerusalem in 1972. As Cohen would later say, these feelings would, quote, stem from the fact that you are not as good as you want to be. That's really what nervousness is. That first time I went out with Judy Collins, it wasn't to be the last time I felt like this, end quote. No one could really notice this, though. A testament to his power as a performer was caught for posterity in the DVD Live at the Isle of Wight in 1970. For those that don't know, 
the Isle of Wight concert was also known as the British Woodstock, but it was plagued with many issues including technical headaches and general unrest. But Cohen took to the stage and through sheer force of personality did what Jimi Hendrix, Jethro Tull, Joan Baez, and his other predecessors couldn't do on that bill. He talked half a million people down and brought a looming catastrophe under control. Here's an excerpt of Leonard at Work. Alex Gartist is a novelist, a poet, an author, a singer, and uh, an album recorder. He's been trying to get here since 10.30 yesterday morning to do this gig, and he's eventually made it. He's now a group leader. Would you welcome Leonard Cohen in his army? Greetings, greetings. When I was seven years old, my father used to take me to the circus. He had a black mustache and a great vest and a pansy in his lapel, and he liked the circus better than I did. But there was one thing at the circus that happened that I always used to wait for. I don't want to impose on you, this isn't like a sing-along with Mitch. But there was one moment when a man would stand up and he would say, would everybody light a match so we can locate one another? And could I ask you, each person to light a match so that I could see where you all are. Could each of you light a match so that you'll sparkle like fireflies each at your different heights? I would love to see those matches flare. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Now I know, I know that you know why you're lighting them. Yeah. Thank you. A lot of people without matches. Oh, it's good to be here alone in front of 600,000 it's a large nation, but it's still weak. Still very weak. It needs to get a lot stronger before it can claim a right to land. singing Bird on a Wire, the lead track on his second album, Songs from a Room, which was released in April 1969 and hit number 63 in the U.S. charts. 
but number two in England. So he's really getting big over in Europe. And on the back of the album, it also features this famous black and white photo of his Norwegian girlfriend, Mariana, sitting at a desk in their home in Hydra. Here, Leonard explains the source of the song Bird of a Wire in a 2006 interview. It, the song began because I, uh, uh, the, the, the municipality in this little village where I lived in Greece um, began stringing uh, telephone electrical wires. There was no electricity on the island. They, they, they began stringing wires all over the place. And it was you know, very annoying. Uh, um, because suddenly you're, you know, this view that you'd come a thousand miles for you know, was, was now crisscrossed mm. uh, by wires. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I was resenting this deeply until a bird came. And, and a lot of birds came, actually, and, and would sit on, on this uh, wire. So that was the genesis of the song, I think. I may have made this story up. It's a good, it's good a story. Good well, I think it's true. Mm. Uh, uh, but uh, as I say, you know, elements, components of, 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 uh, of your life uh, find their way into the song. Uh, I, I used to listen to the um, people coming home late at night, the men coming home from the tavernas, and uh, late at night. And, and e even though they woke people up, uh, it, it was a, a tolerated custom where men, uh, and I was often one of them, would come home and, and you'd see them or you'd see us climbing the stairs of this little village. It was all built around steps and uh, their arms around each other and singing in very close harmony. So mm. that phrase, like a drunk at a midnight choir, and choir rhymed with wire, so that was a gift. And, 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 and it allows you to also, you know, lift your heart in gratitude because wire and choir rhyme, you know, like a bird on a wire, like a drunk in a midnight choir. You know, how lucky you are, you know, to come up with, with that. And, and if it weren't for the obligation of rhyme, mm -hmm. you would never find those um, congruences. That lucky congruence of words had Leonard start to build his catalog of hits. However, it was around this time a change happened to the relationship with Mariana. She had followed him back to North America at one point, but eventually he kept her at arm's length, telling her the folk scene was not for her. By the end of the 1960s, Mariana and Cohen had parted ways. It was an amicable end to their relationship. They would stay in touch during their lifetimes. When he toured in Scandinavia, she would visit him backstage. They exchanged letters and emails frequently. When they spoke to journalists and to friends of their love affair, it was always in the fondest of terms. And it was celebrated in a movie released in 2019 called Marianne and Leonard, Words of Love. The early 1970s would also continue to be a good time for Leonard. Near the end of 1969, Leonard met Susan Elrod. He would have a son, Adam, with her in 1972 and a daughter, Lorca, in 1974. That year, he would also release New Skin for the Old Ceremony, some consider one of his classic albums. This is the album which features several popular Cohen compositions, including Who by Fire and Chelsea Hotel No. 2, which was a remake of the earlier Chelsea Hotel song he had released, and it referred to a sexual encounter he had with Janis Joplin at the Chelsea Hotel in the late 1960s, which we mentioned earlier in this episode. Here's Cohen in concert telling the story behind the song. 
thousand years ago, I lived at this hotel in New York City. And I was a frequent rider of the elevator on this, this hotel. I would continually leave my room and come back. I was an expert on the buttons of that elevator. One of the few technologies I really ever mastered. sense of mastery in those days. Late in the morning, early in the evening, I noticed a young woman in that elevator. She was riding it with as much delight as I was. Even though she commanded huge audiences, riding that elevator was the only thing she really knew how to do. Finally, I gathered my courage. I said to her, are you looking for someone? I said, she said, yes, I'm looking for Chris Christofferson. <laughs> I said, little lady, you're in luck. I'm Chris Christofferson. <laughs> Those were generous times, and <laughs> even though she knew that I was somewhat shorter than Chris Christopherson, she never let on. A great generosity prevailed in those doomed decades. this song for Janis Joplin at the Chelsea Hotel. Cohen would later apologize for what he called, quote, the sole indiscretion in my professional life. He told the BBC in 1994, I associated a woman's name with a song, and in the song, I mentioned I use the line, giving me head on an unmade bed while the limousines wait in the street, and I've always disliked the locker room approach to these matters. I've never spoken in any concrete terms of a woman with whom I've had an intimate relationship, and I named Janice Joplin in that song. I don't know when it started but I connected her name with that song, and I've been feeling very bad about that ever since. It's an indiscretion for which I'm very sorry, and if there was some way of apologizing to a ghost, I want to apologize now for having committed that indiscretion. End quote. It would perhaps soothe his conscience to know that Janice also spoke of their brief affair in less than glowing terms, 
Many years later, an excerpt from a September 3rd, 1969 interview with Janis Joplin was published in the book The 60s by Richard Avedon and Dune Erebus. She made it quite clear that she was very loose with her sexuality and she had no shame in naming both Jim Morrison and Leonard Cohen as lovers who quote-unquote gave her nothing. And this was even before he'd even released the song. So while Leonard may have felt bad, it seems Janice wasn't shy to talk about their time together, and it seems it was not that magical for her as it was for him. Now, while Newskin for the Old Ceremony was a notable work for Leonard in the 1970s, the period also brought one of his less successful albums, the 1977 Phil Spector-produced Death of a Ladies' Man. Biographer Anthony Reynolds writes in the 2010 book Leonard Cohen, A Remarkable Life, that friend and fellow Canadian songwriter Joni Mitchell had tried to warn Cohen about working with Phil at the time. She had witnessed some of the insanity between Phil Spector and John Lennon in LA. But Leonard seemed to ignore the advice from his friend, and early on it seemed that things were fine. Alone writing with Phil, things were fine. But it was once they got into the studio that things fell apart. Here, Leonard shares a story of how the production of that went during a CBC interview in 1984. Were you nervous when you worked with Phil Spector? I was very, very nervous. <laughs> very nervous that, that one of his guns would go off. Does he get he, guns? In the recording studio, it looked like a small arsenal. He, uh, he was carrying a gun and three, three or four bodyguards were carrying guns. And there were bullets falling on the floor, you know. And as the evening drew on and the Manischewitz wine was consumed... Uh, oh, God, how can you drink that stuff? And I, I didn't drink it. No. And, and, uh, and a lot of it, you know, got very loose. And, uh, yeah, things, things got a little bit dangerous. Does he appear... To, this is a fair number of years ago. When was it, 77 yeah. or so? 77, I think, yeah. I made that record, you know. He has uh, all but disappeared, as you know. He's a total recluse and. uh Yes, he uh, he stays in this big house that he that he keeps at about thirty two degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, it's very very cold. To be, I mean, you, you, after after you get to know Phil a while, you you know you take a a fur coat when mm -hmm. you go visit him. Why he does he do the that? Door. It doesn't let you out. He ah. locks the door. Oh, how nice! It's a it's hazardous. Well, why is it so cold? Is it, did you ask him? You say how come it's so cold in here? I don't know. You know, he he really is a magnificent eccentric, mm -hmm. and uh, to work with him uh, just by himself is really delightful. We wrote those songs together over a space of a few months, and when I'd visit him, you know, we'd have really good times and work till late in the morning. But when he got into the studio, he he moved into a different gear, and uh, he became very um, uh, exhibitionistic and uh, and and very mad. And uh, I, I, I lost the handle on the record completely. And he would take it away. He would take the tapes away every day, every night under armed guard. And then he mixed it in secret. He wouldn't let me in. Well, and, did you uh, kick and scream, beg? And, you know? He disappeared. I, I couldn't find him. And, you know, I, I was stuck with the option after a lot of work, a year's work, either to say no mm -hmm. or uh, just to let it go out as it was. And I thought it was, it was good enough to let go out, but it wasn't at all what I thought it could have been. I thought the instinct was good for both of us to mm -hmm. work with each other. And I thought, it, and I think the songs are very, very good, but I think that the voice is lost in the mix, and it's just a matter of turning the right dials. Maybe he wanted you to disappear, who knows? I think he wanted me to disappear. Well, one time he came over to me about four in the morning with a bottle, of, half a bottle of Manischewitz in one hand and a 45 in the other. And he put his, his arm around my shoulder and shoved the nozzle of the 45 into my neck and cocked it and said, I love you, Leonard. 
<laughs> oh my God. Were there ever any moments in your life when you thought you could get that mad? Were you ever that much on the edge? Well, his, his madness, uh, you know, has, has a kind of theatrical expression. Right. Uh, mine tends to uh, uh, get very silent. As you can probably guess from all the chaos, the album didn't come out very well, and it wasn't well received by the fans, and it left many diehard Cohen fans absolutely stunned. Reflecting on the album in a 1992 uh, interview with Paul Zolo, Leonard would share the belief that his voice was not really ready up to the task, but he really felt that the work beneath was solid. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the death of a ladies' man. Um, mm. You wrote all the songs with Bill Spector. Did, did you come to him and say, let's write together? Did he come to you? He came to a concert of mine at the Troubadour. And uh, this was supposed to be a, a significant event because he, he didn't leave his house very often. We had a mutual friend. Who, uh, he was a lawyer for both of us. But he was a friend, a mutual friend, uh, Martin Mashat, Martin J. Mashat, who passed away. And uh, uh, Phil invited us both back to his house after the concert. And uh, I always loved Phil Spector and his work. And, uh, he, but he had this habit of locking the doors on his guests. He also kept the air conditioning at about 32. So uh, uh, I couldn't get out of the house. I said, look, Phil, you know, if you insist on locking me in your house, I'll, might we do something to relieve the boredom of the vacation? <laughs> yeah. So we started writing together that, that night. And uh, we kept up writing. And, uh, and I bring the lyric every so often. And uh, you know, after a couple of months, we had enough material for the song. Those, that period was very charming. He was very hospitable. He is a very hospitable man. The recording was a, 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 of another uh, matter, and I've spoken of it often. And uh, you know, it was, uh, in retrospect, amusing. And it, you know, I've dined out on those stories for many years. Mm -hmm. Was, was the writing process enjoyable? Very enjoyable. Uh, Did you write all the lyrics? Yes, I wrote all the lyrics. Uh, do you like those songs from the album? I think the songs are good. Yeah. I think the songs are excellent. I, I think that if anybody, uh, uh, you know, disappointed the project, it was me. I don't think I had to, you know, I, th I think that Phil really delivered, as he always does. Yeah. Um, I didn't have the chops to sing those songs. I think I could. I think I could sing them now, and I'd like to do some of them again, maybe with Phil. Um, I think that would be a very interesting proposition to go in and, and try to re-record some of those tunes, because I think the songs are good. I think a song like J uh, "Memories" is a, is a really dynamite tune. Yeah. I think the tune is good. I think the lyric is touching. I think it really does come out of that high school gymnasium. Mm -hmm. The Last Dance, and uh, I think a song like a Paper Thin Hotel is a real good song, a very interesting song. Mm -hmm. I'd like to do those, those two songs with Phil again. Like that happen? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that could happen. And uh, I don't, I think I could, I think I could sing the songs now. I think I have the confidence to deliver one of those songs. I need to get into it. 
Now, in this brief clip, you got to remember this was 1992, and he talked about having a redo with Phil Spector, but this wasn't really going to become possible. As uh, you may or may not know, in 2003, Phil Spector would shoot and kill actress Lana Clarkson one late night in his home, and in 2009, he would be found guilty of murdering Clarkson and sentenced to 19 years to life in state prison. Besides the album release in 1978, Leonard Cohen would also release a book of poetry with the slightly altered title, Death of a Lady's Man, lady being spelt L-A-D-Y apostrophe S instead of ladies, L-A-D-I-E-S. It has nothing in common with the album except one poem called Death of a Lady's Man, which is identical to the lyrics of the album's title song. Interesting to note as well, on the album cover is a photo from the liner notes of the album, Leonard notes, photo was taken by, quote, an anonymous roving photographer at a forgotten Polynesian restaurant, end quote. It features from left to right Eva Lapierre, Cohen himself, and Susan Elrod, the mother of his children and, at the time, common-law wife. In 1979, Leonard would release recent songs, which he decided to produce himself with assistance from Henry Louis, who himself had previously worked regularly with fellow Canadian Joni Mitchell. And in this album, it was viewed as a return to form for the artist. But after two albums in a very short period, it would be five more years until we would hear new work from Leonard Cohen. And you know what? No one could blame him for that. He really needed a break. His mother died in 1978, and there was a major strain on the relationship with Susan Elrod. She had separated from him. In 1979, she took his children Adam and Lorca to live near Avignon, France. Adam Cohen, his son, would later describe his childhood in a 2012 article in the Jewish Chronicle as a, quote, gypsy-like existence. Our childhood was divided between France with our mother, Susan, and our dad in New York, Los Angeles, and the island of Hydra in Greece, end quote. In a New York Magazine article in 2012, though, he described his relationship with his father at the time, Quote, although my father wasn't in the household with us, his presence was the very oxygen we were breathing, end quote. In an issue of People magazine in 1980, his life was described as follows. Quote, since the separation, Leonard had followed a high-tension regime, writing, arranging, recording, touring, living out of a suitcase, interspersed with brief periods of collapse and recovery on Hydra or Mount Baldy, California. On the coast, he consults a sort of Buddhist monk, Joshu Sasky, who runs an L.A. center for meditation and manual labor. When I go there, it's like scraping off the rust, Cohen says. I'm not living with anybody the rest of the time. Nobody can live with me. I have almost no personal life. This is a regime he would later return to later in his life, especially spending time with his mentor, Joshu Sasky, or as he would later be known, Roshi. Eventually, though, Leonard found himself centered again in some sort of way, and after a hiatus of sorts, Leonard would return fully to public life in 1984, a year that would turn out to be both sweet and tough. In that year, Cohen published his next book of poems, Book of Mercy, which won him the Canadian Authors Association Literary Award for Poetry. However, this was also a year that came with what can be considered the worst time in his singing career, at least in the USA. His new album, Various Positions, had the indignity of being rejected by the American arm of Columbia Records. President of the company at the time, Walter Yentikoff, deemed the album unworthy of release. In a 1989 CBC documentary, Leonard shared what happened as he talks about various album covers. I never had a, uh, a strategy about uh, imagery. I always uh, tried to choose 
the picture of the man that was singing the songs. I, I generally would never take a photograph specifically for uh, an album cover, or I, I wouldn't go to anyone else. This this particular album cover, various positions, which uh, yeah, I like that. Which I did in um, in the Royalton Hotel in New York City with a Polaroid camera. I took about a uh, hundred or hundred and fifty. I like that. But that record album never came out in the state, did it? No. Columbia Records uh, uh, refused to put it out Why? Uh, at a certain point. I don't know. They, they, uh, at that point, uh, uh, nobody thought, uh, nobody in the, the New York company thought that um, the songs were, you know, I think they thought it was all over for me. Did you think ever that it was all over for you as a singer? Uh, I certainly saw that, uh, that the the American record company uh, had made some kind of decision that uh, uh, I was a marginal singer and uh, becoming more and more marginal as I aged. So uh, I walked into uh, Mr. Walter Yetnikoff's office. He's the uh, president or chairman of the board of uh, CBS in New York. And uh, he said, oh, the poet from the north. And uh, I played him. Uh, the song, uh, Dance Me to the End of Love. Mm. He said, I don't like the mix. And I said, uh, you mix it, Mr. Yetnikoff. You know, if that's what's going to stop you putting out the record, you know, you just mix it and put it out. And he said, look, Leonard, we know you're great, but we don't know if you're any good. And we're interested in tonnage. So I, I appreciated that kind of uh, frankness. And there's something very refreshing about dealing with these very big companies you know if uh, you're selling records there's uh, a bottle of brand in your hotel room and there's a car waiting for you and if you aren't they don't answer your telephone calls well, I, I was in a situation then when they were uh, not answering my telephone calls that's why i had to bring the record in physically and try to play it for them for those that are unaware this is the album that had Leonard's greatest commercial hit on it. Yes, that's right. Hallelujah was on this album. It took him many years to write, and the original words to the song had over 80 verses. On the album was a shortened version that he was relatively happy with. However, it would not be another 20 years before the song would become the worldwide hit we know. A whole episode could be just devoted to this song, and actually... The best one I ever heard was by Malcolm Gladwell in his series Revisionist History in Season 1. Um, I believe it's Episode 7, and I'll, I'll put the uh, link in the show notes. But for us, uh, the short story is, or for our purposes, is that uh, this would not be a hit for now until the remake by John Cale and the release by Jeff Buckley, who unfortunately uh, perished at a very young age. Asked about this record in 2009 when being interviewed by The Q, Leonard talked about the pleasure he found in seeing success with this album. Let me ask you about Hallelujah for a moment. Sure. Because it's been an interesting year for Hallelujah. If it, if it hadn't been a song that uh, Canadians and people around the world have been singing versions by Jeff Buckley, Rufus Wainwright, Katie Lang, it took on a whole new energy, a song that you wrote in 1984, this past Christmas, where it appeared number one and number two on the UK right. bestseller charts, and your version, these were cover versions, and your version was also in the top 40 from 1984. What did you make of that? Um, well, there was a certain sense of, well, I, I, I was happy that the song was, was um, 
being used, uh, of course, there were certain ironic and amusing uh, sidebars, you know, because the record that it came from, which was called Various Positions, that record Sony didn't put, wouldn't put out. They didn't think it was good enough. It had songs like Dance Me the End of Love, Hallelujah, If It Be Your Will, but it wasn't considered good enough for the American market. It, was, it wasn't put out. So there was a certain sense of, a mild sense of revenge that arose in my heart. But uh, uh, I don't, I, you know, I, 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 was, I was happy about it, but it's, I was just reading a review of uh, a movie called Watchmen that uses it. And the reviewer said, can we please have a moratorium on hallelujah, you know, in, in movies and television shows. <laughs> you know, I kind of feel the same way. <laughs> I was going to say to which he placed a stern phone call and said, no, let's keep it going. But it's an interesting, the song kind of transcends musical genres. It's not a, it's not a typical pop song, uh, but it doesn't. Not only does it not seem to go away, it seems to grow in its popularity with each year. I know it's one of your favorite songs. You've said so. I, I like the song. I think it's well, a, it's a good song. But I, I mean, I, th- I think th- I think too many people are singing. I I think people ought to stop singing it for a little while. What is the magic of Hallelujah? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, you're, one is always trying to write a, a good song, and like everything else, you put in your best effort, but you can't command the consequences. So it took a long time. The, uh, the song was written. I thought I think the song came out in in '83 or '84, and then the only person who seemed to recognize the song was Dylan, and he was he was doing it in because nobody else recognized the song until quite a long time later, I think. When was Jeff Buckley's? In the nine, in 92. In 92, so it's almost uh, 10 years later. Uh, I, knew, I knew his father very well, Jeff Buckley, uh, incidentally. They're both, they're both fine young men, but, uh, um, and I think John Kill, whom I knew personally, he asked me for a for a bunch of lyrics, and I sent him a whole bunch of lyrics. And and I, where did he put it out? Is his in Shrek, or is that Rufus Wainwright's? Uh, that's a good question. I think it's. it's it, I think it's Rufus's. Yeah. In, in Shrek, it's Rufus's, yeah, or so. there, there there must. There, There's a John Kale one that's in a movie too, though. I think. Well, I think that. I don't know about this, but anyways, they're both beautiful versions. I think, I think John Kills might be in the movie and Rufus is on the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. There was some curious distribution uh, uh, of the song between those two singers, uh, but they're both great singers. Uh, I've heard, I was in the room when, when Katie Lang sang it at the uh, Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. That, that really... That really touched me. Do the songs ever, do they feel like possessions in the sense that, is there ever a, a, a version of somebody working with your writing that, that you don't appreciate? Where you sort of say... Very, very rarely does that happen. 
uh, I, I'm not sure this ever happened. Uh, you know, I, I had a very modest career for most of my life, and uh, I was always happy when someone did one of my songs. So that overrode most of the critical, cons critical concerns I might have had. In fact, you know, my critical faculties went into suspended animation when someone would do one of my songs, and I, I generally was just delighted when anybody, and I still feel that way. Unfortunately for Leonard at this time, though, he was in a low period. The U.S. arm of Columbia Records did not want to release the record, and thankfully, once again, the relationships he had formed over the years had come to help him along. His former backup singer, now a big star in her own right, Jennifer Warnes, advocated to release a Leonard Cohen cover album. And in 1987, her album, Famous Blue Raincoat, dropped, and it very quickly became a big-selling album of Cohen reinterpretations. Leonard certainly also recognized the importance she played in his resurrection, as you can hear in this a little interview from the BBC. Jennifer, with a great deal of difficulty, I'd always thought that you know, her intention to produce a record of my songs was an expression of friendship, because we're very tight. We've been working and friends for many, many, since 72. But she went from office to office. She was laughed out of most of them. She was left out of all the major labels with the intention to do an album of my songs. You know, that was the last thing the marketplace needed in the opinion of record executives. But she did find a small company and did do it, and that was very, very helpful. Not just from the commercial point of view, but it's an impeccable record. It was a record that had to be made. It was just a matter of, I think of that record as just me walking around shining a flashlight and saying, look over there, isn't that great? In an attic, you know, going, hey, we forgot about that. Isn't that beautiful? That's all that record did. It was just to say to people, have you forgotten what's beautiful? Have you forgotten what's gorgeous? I'll show you. This is what it is. Don't forget. So with her advocacy behind him, I'm Your Man was released in 1988 and became the biggest of Cohen's career up to that point. This album, in my view, could alone be a greatest hits album. It includes tracks such as First We Take Manhattan, Everybody Knows, Tower of Song, and of course the title track, I'm Your Man. And the popularity of this album was more than just a case of old fans returning to the fold. It seemed a huge number of young people, we can call them, I guess, the Kurt Cobain generation, which I guess I was part of, were primed for a different voice and perspective, something darker, wiser, and wry. As a matter of fact, Kurt Cobain would reference Leonard Cohen in a track of his own called Penny Royalty, and he sang, quote, give me a Leonard Cohen afterworld so I can sigh eternally, end quote. By this time, too, Leonard's voice had become much deeper and richer. It was a voice we will always think of when we think of his voice, that deep, booming voice. In an interview in 1988, Matt Zimbel asked him about these changes. And uh, this is a raw interview from a VHS tape um, that Matt has uploaded to YouTube. So I, I must apologize for the poor quality, but you know what? It's a really great story on how his voice changed. For a living testament to... Uh Cigarette smoking being a, a career aid. <laughs> no, Your voice on the new record is phenomenal. It's larger than life. It's beautiful. And um, I guess it has something to do with uh, the fact that your voice is a lot lower in the last little while. Yeah, that's right. I, I, 50,000 cigarettes and a couple of hundred thousand gallons of whiskey have done it. But I, I tried to, I've given up smoking, smoking twice on this tour now. 
both for about a month and a half. But the, the tensions of Carnegie Hall uh, catapulted me backward into the vicious habit again. He's going on stage and he bums the smoke off the stage manager. Listen, yeah, I can't handle exactly, this any longer. That's, that's, <laughs> it happened those that way. So with your, your deeper voice, it has uh, allowed you to kind of inhabit your songs better, I think, to, to some degree. Ha, ha, what's it been like? You've, you've had to endure a tremendous amount of vocal criticism over the years. Oh, it's been ferocious. Does it get to you, or are you, are you able to just kind of tuck it away? Well, ever since uh, I received a review, I think it was in 72, after I'd sung at the Isle of Wight for about 500,000 people, there was a, um, a review of the concert in, uh, I think it was Melody Maker. They said, uh, Leonard Cohen is a boring old drone and should go the fuck back to Canada where he belongs. No nothing has quite reached the heights of that uh, savagery. No, it's true, especially over here uh, uh, in North America. Uh, I've had to justify my uh, uh, my hubris in daring to raise my voice in song. In some places in the world, they consider me an accomplished stylist. But uh, over here, the, the uh, in Jenner, in the reviews of Jennifer's album, which I'm happy to say we're all positive, most of the reviewers went out of their way to. Uh, to thank the Lord that uh, my songs were at last being sung by someone they could listen to. I think in, uh, Mel in um, People magazine they said, Cohen has all the musicality of a cement mixer. That seems to be the general position, at least until this record. Also on this album, he poked fun at the perception people had of him as a merchant of doom, as he so often was called. Leonard is standing in what looks like an empty warehouse wearing dark shades, a designer suit, and eating a banana. He addressed this cover as well in this 1988 interview. Everybody talks about uh, this record as having a, a different sense of humor. Uh, you're revealing a sense of humor that hasn't been there before. Can you talk to me about that a little bit? How do you see that? Well, I, I guess the people uh, uh, in the past uh, think of me as a master of gloom. Uh, they say music to slit your wrist by, and I'm described as a melancholic. And somehow those descriptions get into the computer. And every time you know they type out my name, these uh, uh, descriptions follow. And uh, it goes from generation of journalists to generation of journalists. So that, uh, you know, often journalists ask me about uh, uh, things like melancholy and depression, and so the reviews or the the uh, articles are concerned with melancholy and depression. But I, I've discovered that journalists are quite depressed a lot themselves, and uh, uh, they generally like to talk about their own predicament and p perhaps project their own predicament in the articles they write about me. So, anyways, the thing has gotten into the air, and that's how I'm perceived. Does that have any influence on having a picture taken on the front cover with a half-eaten banana? That was a snapshot that was shown to me, uh, was not set up, but I thought it was uh, the essential evolved macho gorilla that uh, is, uh, seems to be behind the, uh, a lot of the songs, that position. If I laugh into the mic, she gets mad when she edits, so I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> Yeah. 
okay, I know we're a depressed lot. I'm going to try and straighten up here and pull it together. Sorry. His wry sense of humor is on full display here, as it would be in 1991 when he was inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame at the Juno Awards. In his fantastic acceptance speech, Cohen made it clear he truly appreciated the recognition at this time in his life. Let's listen to his speech from that night. so much for standing up for me. I owe so much to so many that if I began to catalog the debts I have incurred on the way, I would be in danger of exhausting us all with an endless filibuster of insolvency and gratitude. I, I, I did resist the tone that was uh, entering the hall in which I was afraid of finding myself the guest of honor at a memorial service. Uh, I hope, even though the devil laughs when we make plans I hope that I will be able to sing another song or two before you, before the curtain comes down. Some well-meaning but mistaken individuals came to me and said, well, it's about time they gave you that award. But I want to say that the graciousness, the hospitality, and the timing of the Academy is impeccable. If uh, I had been given this attention when I was uh, 26, it would have turned my head. Uh, at 36, it might have confirmed my flight on a rather morbid spiritual path. At 46, it would have rubbed my nose in my failing powers and uh, prompted uh, a plotting of a getaway and an alibi. But at 56, hell, I'm just hitting my stride and it doesn't hurt at all. I want to salute those who have stood here before me, the residents of the Hall of Fame, Guy Lombardo, Oscar Peterson, Hank Snow, Wilf Carter, the Diamonds, the Crew Cuts, the Four Lads, Glenn Gould, Neil Young, the Band, Paul Anka, Gordon Lightfoot, Joni Mitchell, Maureen Forrester. Two women of genius among all that exuberant masculine prominence <laughs> causes me causes me to reflect that it's going to be hard to get a date in the Hall of Fame.
But I, I know, like New York City, it's only a place you visit. You don't want to live there. Any soldier knows that you don't go to bed with your medals on. But most urgent on my list of appreciation are those of you who have welcomed my tunes into your lives, into your kitchens when you're doing the dishes, into your bedrooms when you are courting and conceiving, into those nights of uh, loss and bewilderment, into those aimless places of the heart which only a song seems to be able to enter. It is before this sudden and strange and mysterious intimacy that is developed between us that I bow my head in real gratitude. My friends are gone and my hair is gray and I ache in the places where I used to play and I'm hungry for love but I'm not coming on I'm just paying my rent every day in the Tower of Song I said to Hank Williams how lonely does it get? Hank Williams hasn't answered yet. But I hear him coughing all night long, a hundred floors above me in the Tower of Song. I was born like this. I had no choice. I was born with the gift of a golden voice. And 27 angels from the great beyond, they tied me to this table right here in the Tower of Song. So you can stick your little pins in that voodoo doll. I'm very sorry, baby, it doesn't look like me at all. I'm standing by the window where the light is strong. They don't let a woman kill you in the Tower of Song. Now you can say that I've grown bitter, but of this you may be sure. The rich have got their channels in the bedrooms of the poor. And there's a mighty judgment coming. But I may be wrong. You see, you hear these funny voices in the Tower of Song. So, I bid you farewell. I don't know when I'll be back. They're moving us tomorrow to that tower down the track. But you'll be hearing from me, baby. Long after I'm gone, I'll be speaking to you sweetly from my window in the Tower of Song. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I think this honor really meant something as well. Leonard had been off the road after touring successfully in support of his comeback album, I'm Your Man. He'd also taken a year off to help his son Adam convalesce after a serious car accident in the West Indies, which had left the young man in a coma for four months. It was also around this time in the early 1990s when Cohen began a romantic relationship with the actress Rebecca De Mornay. In 1992, he would release The Future, which featured the hit Closing Time, 
And the following year for this album, he would win a Juno for Vocalist of the Year and also the Juno Award for Best Music Video in 1993. While accepting the award for Best Vocalist, he quipped, quote, only in Canada could someone with a voice like mine win Vocalist of the Year, end quote. 1993 was also the year he received the Governor's General Award for Lifetime Artistic Achievement. Life was really coming fast for him at this time. And in 1993, Leonard also began to spend several months a year at the Zen Buddhist monastery on Mount Baldy outside of Los Angeles. He had retreated to this place in the late 1970s, and now he took his time there even more seriously. He shaved his head, prayed, woke up at 2.30 in the morning to do chores, and in 1996, Cohen actually became ordained as a monk. But at the end of the day, this didn't really safeguard him from depression, something that had been a lifelong nemesis for him. And two years later, it completely overwhelmed him. Quote, I've dealt with depression ever since my adolescence, he said, moving into some periods which were debilitating when I found it hard to get off the couch to periods when I was fully operative, but the background noise of anguish still prevailed, end quote. Cohen tried antidepressants. He tried throwing them out. Nothing worked. He was about to give up on his quest when he actually picked up a book by an Indian writer by the name of Balsakar. Shortly thereafter, he left Mount Baldy and headed to Mumbai, this time in Mumbai from 1999 to 2000 would actually change everything from Leonard. There he found the help of that octogenarian Hindu guru named Ramesh Balsakar. With him he studied Buddhism, Zen, and other things. After calling Balsakar in the mornings, he would spend the rest of the day swimming, writing, and wandering into the city. With these regiments, and for reasons he says he found, quote, impossible to penetrate, end quote, his depression finally lifted. And he would later tell Rolling Stone of what Balsakar would teach him. Quote, the model I finally understood suggested that there really is no fixed self. The conventional therapeutic wisdom today encourages the sufferer to get in touch with his inner feelings, as if there was an inner self, a true self, the real self that we have glimmerings of in dreams and insights. There is no real inner self to command your loyalty and the tyranny of your investigation. What happened to me was not that I got any answers, but the questions dissolved. And with that, he was ready to come home. In a 2001 interview, he reflected on his time searching for answers, and you can feel that he finally had a better understanding of how to move forward. One of the wonderful things that happened to me uh, up at Mount Baldy is that I discovered I had uh, no religious aptitude you know, that um, that I wasn't really a, a, a religious man, uh, that I didn't have that gift, uh, that I really didn't uh, have the gift for that kind of life, although I, I, I love it in many ways. So, so in, in a way you can say that you, you failed as a monk? Yeah. Yeah. Thank God. Well, I think one of the uh, qualities of uh, that kind of life is to recognize that you fail. Uh, you know, young monks, young students come with uh, very sublime uh, religious aspirations, and uh, those are quickly overthrown. I think everybody uh, has that experience, both young and old, of uh, an uncomfortable quality to one's life, a sense of defeat. And uh, 
you know, that can either embitter you, as it does to some, or it can um, open your heart, as it does to other for more fortunate people. I'm lucky to be one of those people. But so being back on Boogie Street, it's very nice here. It's very nice on Boogie Street, but up there is Boogie Street too. You know, it's uh, you know a, a monastery, uh, the kind Roshi runs. In any case, you know, it's more like a hospital. And he's the doctor. Um, and he's the doctor. And, and what does uh, he cure? He cures the illusion that you're sick. And uh, uh, he, was, he was successful in my case. He cured the illusion that I needed his teachings. So what were the sicknesses that you thought you had? Um, I guess the same sicknesses everybody has that uh, you don't get what you want, and, and, and if you do get it, it isn't what you wanted. Uh, the objects of your desire continually escape you. There's some wisdom, some path, that if you could only uh, embrace it, uh, you could uh, uh, extract yourself from distress and suffering. All these um, aspirations that all of us nourish uh, that there's uh, another life that is that would be better, uh, that another way would be better, another lover would be better, uh, you know, another métier would be better. Uh, this uh, this idea that there's uh, something to grasp. And you were a victim of that uh, illusion before. I was a specialist. You were a specialist. <laughs> you were better. <laughs> Uh, than most of us, <laughs> because you had more of it. You had well, more of the fame, of the money, of the women, of the... Maybe that's so. That's so. I, I think that everybody experiences the, the same kind of longing and uh, dissatisfaction. I think it's... No matter how much you have. No matter how much you have. Uh, I, I don't know if it's any more bitter when you have a lot than when you have little. I, I, don't, I don't think we have a standard to be able to judge who's suffering more. But I think we can take it for granted that everybody uh, suffers a sense of um, some, uh, something left undone, unfelt, unexperienced. And mostly it's in, in, uh, in the West where we don't experience famine and uh, other kinds of natural disasters as often. You know, it, it usually is on the level of the heart. We don't feel we love enough or have enough love. As Leonard now moved forward with this new understanding, it was also the time to celebrate a new Leonard Cohen album. In 2001, he released his first new album in 10 years. It was called, appropriately enough, 10 New Songs, which included the fan favorite, In My Secret Life. Leonard was in good spirits about this release, but he was also fully aware, as he would often be quoted as saying, he was heading into the third act. So aging is quite nice. In, in my case, it's been uh, a great blessing. But there must be some hard part of it. 
Well, I think the collapse of the body uh, um, is, uh, is an aspect to it, and, and I, I'm not in old age, you know. Uh, I think I'm in that good period, you know, before the onset of the diseases that eventually kill you. Uh, I think it was Tennessee Williams said, uh, life is a fairly well-written play, except for the third act. It's a very bad third act. But for you, it was the best so far. Well, uh, uh, you know, just beginning the third act is, is fine. I don't know how the third act will unfold, but it doesn't unfold very well for anybody. No. So I'm probably in, in, you know, the most graceful period that I've ever experienced, you know, before the onset of these uh, uh, unpleasant, the unpleasant destruction of the body, which is inevitable. Don't kid yourself, though. Leonard did not let age stop him, and he still had plenty to do. However, life's circumstances would soon alter his plans once again. In 2004, as Cohen was turning 70, he became aware of major financial impropriety of a family friend and manager. While Cohen was in Mount Baldy and in Mumbai, seen to his spiritual well-being, his manager, Kelly Lynch, had been busy emptying out her clients' accounts. While he would release a new album that year called Dear Heather, he did not tour or grant interviews at this time. And considering all the stuff that was going on, it's quite understandable. He had been completely betrayed, and it was serious. Cohen sued and, in fact, win a large settlement, but he was never able to collect the money. Kelly ignored the suit and subpoenas and was eventually sent to jail for 18 months. In the meantime, there was really only one thing for Leonard to do, and that was to get back out there and work. In order to replenish his finances, Cohen embarked on a host of projects from publishing a new poetry collection, Book of Longing, and participating in the film Leonard Cohen, I'm Your Man, to playing world tours and producing new albums. Cohen was able to deal with this much better than I think most of us could. Reflecting on this time in an interview in 2009, he talked about it in a very frank way. These financial difficulties that you had, you were uh, uh, defrauded by uh, somebody you personally worked with uh, closely for, for many years. Um, this was news and, and uh, it's been explored how this happened. Was it important to you to rebuild the nest egg when that uh, money was gone? Well, it, it was presented in much more urgent terms than that. There was a matter of, of uh, financial survival. So it, 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 I, I didn't sit around thinking it's important to build an essay. It's important to, to, um, to produce some income. So I, I got busy and uh, I was able to, to uh, put some things into motion. But as I say... You, you can put forward your best effort, but there's no guarantee that the circumstances, that the consequences are going to yield the um, results that you intend. Nobody can do that. So I put in my best efforts, and, 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 and luckily uh, 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 they've been uh, rewarded with a certain amount of, of financial remuneration. And, and this current tour is very lucrative. A part of where I, I come from is I'm, 
you, you seem like such a modest man. Your your house is certainly modest. It's it's Spartan. You don't seem to require a lot. How important is material wealth to you at this point? Well, I, you can't ignore it. Uh, I mean, I I, I I I I like to live simply, but that's not a virtue. It's just a preference. Besides his commercial success, Leonard was now also getting recognized and honored for his work. It was in the mid to late 2000s when Leonard would be inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He was also named to the National Order of Quebec and received the Glenn Gould Prize. This is just to name a few of the honors he received at the time. He was also to see five of his songs added to the Songwriters Hall of Fame. These would include Burn on a Wire, Ain't No Cure for Love, Everybody Knows, Hallelujah, and Suzanne. Let's listen now to the former Governor General Adrian Clarkson as Leonard got his induction to the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2006. Before Leonard Cohen, there were songs. And after hearing Leonard Cohen, there are no songs quite like his. He's changed all our lives with the complexity of his sadness, the breadth of his love. None of us can imagine a time when he didn't tell us that that's no way to say goodbye, or the knowing generosity of not being lovers like that, and besides, it would still be all right. He gets inside your brain, your heart, your lungs. You remember him, you feel him, you breathe him. He is our connection to the meaning of ecstasy. Our access to another world we suspected existed, but which he puts into song. We love you, Leonard, but in that love is some fear. <laughs> fear that you are telling us the truth and that the truth will make us know ourselves through unbearable beauty in painful remorse. Leonard told me when he began singing that the time was over when poets should sit on marble staircases in long black cloaks. He's been standing on that staircase for all the world to see for 40 years now. In one of your first published poems, you wrote, I heard of a man who says words so beautifully that if he only speaks their name, women give themselves to him. <laughs> we have heard those words, and we have all given ourselves to him. It honors me deeply to present this award to Leonard Cohen, our Leonard Cohen. So there Leonard's there, he walks onto the stage, he faces a crowd giving him a loud and long standing ovation. He takes it in while wiping the tears of gratitude from his eyes with a handkerchief, and he begins to talk. Thank you, friends. Thank you so much. And please, the brevity and poverty of these remarks do not reflect the abundance of feeling 
in my heart for all of you and for the deep hospitality you have given to my work over the years. Uh, if I knew where the good songs came from, I'd go there more often. <laughs> so it is that we shuffle behind our songs into the Hall of Fame, shuffle awkwardly, not quite believing that we wrote them, but happy that you do. You have been so good to me over the years. My heart is filled with gratitude. Georges Dor wrote that great song, Si tu savais comment s'ennuie à la manique, te m'écriras bien plus souvent à la manique wagon. If you knew how life drags on at la manique, you'd write to me a lot more often at La Manique Wagon. And that's what we're all saying to one another. If you knew how life dragged on, you'd write to us a lot more often. You'd write each of us to one another. And I'm so privileged and so proud and so honored that you have accepted some of my letters. Thank you so much. Shortly thereafter that moment, and in 2007, Cohen would begin planning a tour, and these songs would be part of that nightly playlist, or his letters as he called them. His new manager, Robert Corey, did everything possible so that it was a first-class operation, a private plane where Cohen could write and sleep, good hotels where he could read and compose on a keyboard, a car to take him to the hotel the minute he stepped off the stage, and it was a really, really grueling schedule. Between 2008 and 2013, Leonard Cohen played 387 shows to more than 2 million people. Now, you got to remember, this man was in his 70s. And there was also something different about these performances, which was, for the first time in his life, Leonard found joy on stage, and it was evident to anyone that was seeing these concerts happen. His final tour performance was in Auckland, New Zealand, on December 21st, 2013. He wrapped things up with a cover of the Drifters classic, Save the Last Dance for Me. As his touring activities wound down, Cohen spent more time at his home in Los Angeles, his daughter Lorca and his granddaughter downstairs, as well as his son Adam and his family just down the street. Leonard Cohen would also release three more albums during this latter part of his life, Old Ideas in 2012, Popular Problems in 2014, and You Want It Darker in 2016, which would be released just three weeks before he passed on. One of Cohen's last public acts was a Facebook posting on the death of Mariana, his muse from Hydra, who succumbed in July 2016 to leukemia. It was a copy of the email he sent to her before she passed on. He wrote the following, quote, Dearest Mariana, I'm just a little behind you, close enough to take your hand. This old body has given up, just as yours has too, and the eviction notice is on its way any day now. I've never forgotten your love and your beauty, but you know that. I don't have to say any more. Safe travels, old friend. See you down the road. Love and gratitude, Leonard. 
end quote. In September, Leonard Cohen granted one of his last interviews to David Rebnick of The New Yorker and spoke of how he was feeling as his health began to fail. He was suffering from excruciating back pain and the drugs he needed to alleviate the pain he couldn't use because he was allergic to them. Thankfully, his earlier Zen training of meditation was now coming in very handy. I've had to white knuckle this thing. You know, fortunately, I have some training in, uh, we could call it mind control. Uh, as a blessing, the, the mental activity is, is working just fine. Uh, I got most of my marbles, maybe more than I've had at other periods. In a certain sense, this particular predicament is uh, filled with many less distractions than at other periods of my life and actually enables me to work with a little more concentration and uh, continuity. The only thing that mitigates against full production is uh, just the condition of my body because there are times I just have to lie down. Leonard, you have to say when you need a rest or... No, I'm, I'm fine. It's, it's you guys. Would you like something to In October of 2016, KCRW's Chris Duretis would have the last public interview with Leonard Cohen. The conversation took place at the Canadian Consulate in Los Angeles on October 13th as part of a special listening session for You Want It Darker, his last album. But as you can hear, he was in good spirits and his sense of humor was fully on display. Our friends, thanks so much. Some of you come a long, long way, and I appreciate it. Some of you have driven across uh, Los Angeles. takes about the same time. Uh, <laughs> thank you for that, too. <laughs> Hello. Chris, thanks for doing this. appreciate it. Oh, it's my honor to be here, Leonard. You, you've been so kind to me and so many artists over the years. And uh, on behalf of myself and all those people you've put into the spotlight. I really appreciate and offer my, my gratitude. Thank you, Leonard. Thank you. Thank you for a beautiful album. It's a stunning work, don't you think? Yeah. Uh, okay. uh, I think the first thing, um, how are you feeling? Uh, I, I, I said I was uh, ready to die recently, and uh, I think I was exaggerating. Uh, <laughs> one is given to self-dramatization from time to time. <laughs> I intend to live forever. <laughs> I was so moved when I first heard the album. It, it astonishes me that, I mean, most songwriters can't carry their powers past their 20s. And here you are on your 82nd birthday, dropping a single and then an album thereafter that is as good or better than anything you've ever done. And I wonder, how have you been able to retain consistency of quality all these years? I don't know. I think that, uh, I think that any songwriter, I think that Bob Dylan knows this more than all of us. You don't write the songs anyhow. If you're lucky, you can keep the vehicle healthy and uh, responsive over the years, if you're lucky. 
your own intentions have very little to do with this. You, you can keep the body as uh, well-oiled and uh, receptive as possible, but whether you're actually going to be able to go for the long haul is really not your own choice. One of the other things that I thought was really cool about this project is that you were able to work with your son. My son and my daughter have both uh, been an incredibly sustaining force, uh, especially through this recent bad patch. So I've been blessed and grateful for their company and for their assistance. Adam is a great singer-songwriter in his own right. To have his uh, microscopic attention to my work is, uh, <laughs> is a great, really a great privilege. Adam, I wonder if you could speak to the importance of this project as it relates to your relationship with your father. I won't punish you. <laughs> I was speaking with my wife earlier this afternoon and uh, she said, you know, in a way it seems as though your whole life was leading up to a certain preparedness to work on this record. And I knew that what she meant was not my so-called career, but, you know, dinners, standing by the side of the stage, watching my father work at five, six, seven years old. But I think more than anything, it's uh, having the privileged vantage point that we all have in this audience of having listened to his work throughout the years and the tireless success with which he injects transcendent value into his work and how those of us on the sidelines are who pretend to do the same thing, the same line of work, uh, marvel. And so for me to have had the privilege and finally, the little capacity to be able to help not only an artist of this magnitude, but who happens to be my father, was one of the more outstanding things that's ever happened to my little life. Of course, as my father says, also just being in my father's company was one of the things I also cherished the most. Moving, moving powerful stuff for me. We're actually not that type of family, but... <laughs> I, I've expressed my gratitude to my son uh, many times, and uh, his career is far from undistinguished, and uh, it was a great privilege to have someone of this skill bringing this album to conclusion. One of the things that, um, you know, Adam, you and I talked earlier today, and one of the most instrumental parts of being a producer on this album was knowing what Leonard didn't want and kind of having a fast track to the things that you know that he cares for. And I wonder if you could speak to those things, the things that you know he's going to like. I think you know? that was my chief advantage, my, maybe my only advantage, other than the patience my father showed me on many occasions when I was being microscopic, which is <laughs> one of my trademarks. <clears throat> the character Thank you so much, of Steve. the record was very much established by the great Pat Leonard's work. And the record didn't start... With no, you no, as no, the, the record yeah. that didn't start with me at all. Yeah. The record started long before me. And the great advantage that I had over everybody else toiling with these great, great pieces of, of melody, of lyric, of song, were that they didn't have to, tra they had to traverse an unknown. Whereas I really had a sense of familiarity with what my father hates. <laughs> you know? Uh, years and years of hearing what he hates in music. 
um, it's a long list. <laughs> to be able to to be able to circumnavigate those things, bypass them, and uh, to be able to propose directions and shapes and sounds that I, by osmosis and by proxy and by listening, I knew would be more uh, mm -hmm. potentially acceptable. <laughs> We're, uh, that was the advantage. Uh, you already mentioned Bob Dylan. There's a wonderful New Yorker article that just came out this week, by the way, uh, that you should definitely read by David Remnick. And in the article, David spoke to Dylan, who had some really wonderful things to say about you. And he actually spoke about something that most people don't really talk about when they talk about your work. And that was the music itself. Did you see what he had to say yes, about I, you? I did. Yeah. That's very generous, uh, very kind. Yeah, I wonder if you would want to comment on what he said there. Uh, well, I won't comment on what he said, but I will comment on his receiving the uh, Nobel Prize, which to me is like uh, pinning a medal on Mount Everest for being the highest mountain. <laughs> what what happened, Leonard? I mean, did you not get the forms filled out in time? How, how come? <laughs> you know, the um, the thing that you hear first when you hear this album, the very first thing that you hear are these incredibly rich and moving vocals. This was a really inspired choice, and I want to ask you about the choir that is featured on the album. From my understanding, they come from a synagogue that is in yes. Montreal. Yes. Uh, well, perhaps uh, Gideon could speak to that. Oh, He's right here. I, I, I didn't. I'm sorry, I'd never met you before, so... I'd... <laughs> Uh, uh, Gideon and... Wait a minute, uh, you guys haven't met yet? No. no. Okay. Uh, Gideon was the, uh, the soloist that you hear on the first song, um, You Want It Darker, and the choir appears on, on the first song and on... Um, seemed a Better seemed, Way. Seemed a Better Way, thank you, yeah. How did you get the call? How did I get the call? Uh, Leonard and I have corresponded for the last number of years, and uh, I have been the cantor of Shah HaShemayim in Montreal for, this is my 13th high holidays that I survived passing Yom Kippur yesterday. And Leonard is a household source of intense pride for our community. His great-grandfather, after whom he's named, and who he signs off his emails to me, Eliezer, was a past president of our community, as was his grandfather. And I've met many of his members of his family over the years, and they thought that I might want to be in touch, and I didn't quite know how to make that happen spontaneously, other than to wish him a happy new year a few years back. And we've gone on from there. And sometime in November, Leonard sent me an email and said, wonder how you'd feel about corresponding and, and collaborating on my new album. And I shouted all sorts of things that no member of the cloth should ever shout. <laughs> and then I said... I wrote back and said, hallelujah, I'm your man. <laughs> and from there, Adam and I took it and ran. And together with Howard Billerman, who's here from Montreal, who is the uh, proprietor of Hotel to Tango, one of the finest studios in our town, we brought the choir in and made it happen. And one of the most wonderful exchanges that we've had over the last number of months was when we were recording samples for the first song on the pulpit in the sanctuary of Shara Shemaim. And I snapped a picture and sent it to Adam and to Leonard, and they wrote back, and Leonard in particular wrote back and said, how many fond memories you have of that room, how many meaningful occasions in your life and in the lives of your family have happened there. So for us to take part in this, a small part in this, is really an honor 
and a privilege. And I thank you for reaching out. Thanks so much, Gideon. We have, uh, we have questions from journalists from around the world. After a couple of questions, he spoke his final words to the audience. Leonard, we want to thank you for being here, and uh, we love you. <laughs> Uh, we have to we have to wrap it up. Is there anything you want to say in closing? Uh, just thanks for coming, friends, and uh, I really appreciate it. And I I really appreciate your standing up when I came into the room. I hope we can do this again. I intend to uh, stick around till 120. <laughs> and with those final words, he went back to his home. Less than a month later. Leonard Cohen would succumb to the injuries after a bad fall at his home in Los Angeles. While he had been suffering from leukemia, he died during his sleep following a fall in the middle of the night on November 7th. Leonard's manager, Robert Corey, issued a statement saying the death was sudden, unexpected, but peaceful. After his death, fans around the world mourned for him. A shrine of sorts formed outside his homes in Montreal and LA. People gathered and sang songs, Later on, his hometown, Montreal, commissioned two large Leonard Cohen portraits, which now oversee the people of the city. One is a beautiful portrait around the corner from his longtime home in Montreal, right near the famous Moishi Steakhouse Leonard would frequent when he found himself in town. It's on Saint Laurent Boulevard and Napoleon Street. The other is what one can only describe as an awe-inspiring 21-story mural on Crescent Street. Leonard, with his fedora and his hand on his heart, overlooks a town that so loved him. Recently, the city invested in lighting it up at night so it can be seen 24-7. There are also small tributes, like right near his Montreal home on Valier Street. There is a street called Marianne, which runs parallel and on the other side of Porte de Portugal. Some enterprising person has added to the sign the words, So Long, and the words, Anne Leonard. So the street sign reads, So Long, Marianne, and Leonard. A beautiful and simple tribute. Another way his memory will go on are the number of covers his songs receive every year. This includes his now most well-known song, Hallelujah. And in modern times, Hallelujah has become one of the most covered songs. There are versions for every taste and even in movies, TV shows, and more. There always seems to be a new one popping up. Heck, it's even being sung in churches now. Also, don't fret if you don't have enough Leonard Cohen. In November 2019... There will be a new album release called Thanks for the Dance, which harkens back to the last song he did on his 2013 tour. And it'll be his 15th studio album, including nine new tracks. So look out for it. Now on to the stamps. In September 2019, Canada Post released three stamps, but it was a long time in coming. As a matter of fact, at an event at McGill in 2017, Robert Waite, a member of the Canada Post Stamp Committee and Vice President of Canada Post let the room on to a little secret. But these are stories that many of you already, many of you already know. They are public stories. But I found everyone likes to be in on the inside story. So I do have one for you tonight. A true insider story never before revealed. In fact, no one outside of the 12 members of the Stamp Committee have, have heard this tale. There is another one of your alumni we would like to honor. In fact, he, and it was a he, has two degrees from McGill. This is someone we tried to feature on a stamp a decade ago, not long after we decided to feature living Canadians on stamps. 
you may not know this, but uh, up until 2005, with the exception of the Queen, uh, we did not depict living individuals on stamps. Um, and, and we made a policy change around that, the first one being Montreal's own Oscar Peterson. But unlike Mr. Peterson, this particular individual turned us down. The time wasn't right. He had things to do. That humble and gracious refusal put him into a very, very small and elite group. He's one of only two people who have said no since we started featuring living Canadians on stamps nearly 12 years ago. And if you haven't guessed, the man is Leonard Cohen, who sadly passed away last November. Since his passing, there has been a tremendous outpouring from Canadians wishing to commemorate this great poet and musician, and yes, this McGill alumnus, in the way that Canada Post can do. It's our hope that once a respectful period of time has passed, we can indeed move ahead on this. We would very much like to honor this truly talented Canadian in such a befitting way. And if we can, trust me, I will be the first to say hallelujah. <laughs> so that's just one of our stories. As I say, it's an inside story, so I, if you tell anybody, I'll have to have you hunted down and <laughs> you know the rest. Um, that's one of our stories, and as I say, it's the first time it's been, been told. So more seriously, um, the way all of this works and the reason children and everyone else gets to be a participant is if you write me a letter um, as chairman of the stamp committee saying that you'd like to see Mr. Cohen on a stamp, that is helpful. So there's a little hint there. And I'm sure that did happen, that a lot of people did write to the stamp committee. And from that, the stamps released in September 2019 were the result. And it really is something special. The Leonard Cohen stamps were unveiled at the Musée de Beaux-Arts. And there was also a party the next day underneath the giant 21-story Leonard Cohen mural on Crescent Street. And it was a beautiful event. There was bagels, there was coffee, there was cake. And I also believe this is the first time that one individual had three stamps depicting them released in one go. Let's take a closer look at these stamps. The Leonard Cohen stamps were created by the Montreal graphic design firm Paprika. They portray the poet, novelist, songwriter in three stages of his life and artistry. The first stamp, which kind of has a silver background, uses a portrait taken by U.S. photographer Jack Robinson for Vogue magazine in 1967, the same year that saw Judy Collins release a version of Cohen's Suzanne and the appearance of Cohen at the Newport Jazz Festival. It's a youthful Leonard Cohen in a crouch looking up. The second, gold kind of background is a serious I'm your man pose. You know, he's graying in his mid-50s. The silhouette is from a 1988 beat shot by the Frenchman Claude Gassian. He is standing tall and confident. It's a nod to the resurgence of his popularity in the 1980s and early 1990s with his unforgettable and oft-covered hallelujah. The final stamp is bronze and Leonard is sitting on his last name. The portrait is circa 2012 and was done by British photographer Platon. The stamp offering comes in different configurations as well. They're available in a book of nine with three of each design available. In total, there's 350,000 booklets that are available from Canada Post. 
There's also a beautiful four pack of official first aid covers. They come wrapped in cellophane. Inside is a nice glossy folder with four envelopes canceled with a postmark for Montreal dated September 21st, the date of Leonard Cohen's birthday. Each envelope represents a different period in his life with a relevant photo on the front. On the reverse, you'll find a story giving you a bit more context for the photo accompanied by a verse of a song around the time the photo was taken. 15,000 of each envelope have been produced and there has been noticeably brisk sales on eBay for this item. For those that want a simple collectible to frame, Canada Post offers a souvenir pane of six stamps with a large photo of Leonard Cohen in the foreground leaning on a worn guitar case. The photo was actually taken by his daughter, Lorca Cohen, and 75,000 of these are available. There was also, and I say this in the past tense, a limited print run of 2,000 folded uncut press sheets packaged in a simulated full-size 12-inch by 12-inch album sleeve. These sold out in less than a week after the release on September 21st. There is brisk bidding on these on eBay if you are looking to grab one for yourself. Thankfully, I was able to grab one right from Canada Post without paying a premium before they sold out. Even though this special item is gone, you don't need to pay premium on the secondary market to get your Leonard Cohen stamps. Canada Post has stated there should be enough stamps produced to get your fix. A total of 4 million stamps have been printed, a number Canada Post believes should be sufficient for Leonard's worldwide fans and collectors to get their own special remembrance of the singer. So don't wait. As Canada Post has stated, these stamps will be available for the next two years or as long as supplies last. Who knows which will happen first. So that's it for the 25th episode. Thank you so much for spending time with me and sharing the show with your friends. We also appreciate you rating the show on your favorite app. Taking the time to do this helps people find our show. Also, don't forget, if you're looking for more info about the show, make sure to check us out at stampstories.ca. Also on our website, you'll be able to see the stamps mentioned in this episode and other cool historical material by clicking on the notes tab on our website or by visiting the link we've added to the description of this podcast episode. Don't forget, if you have any podcast feedback, ideas for guests, cool stories, or more, we'd love to hear it too. And you can email us over at feedback at stampstories.ca. Finally, if you're on Instagram or Twitter, follow us at our handle, stampstoriesca, all one word. It's the best place besides our website to get updates about this podcast. Once again, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon for our next episode. Happy collecting! There might be a fourth act, but we'll leave that to the theologians. <laughs> we need some, uh, some cutaway shots if you can. Sure. Uh, <laughs> did, did we get anything that is uh, uh, interesting? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Because if we didn't, let's go on. Oh, we'll, we'll have to go on. You'll go on. <laughs> I mean, we might get something interesting. <laughs> <laughs>